The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You know, it's the liberal justices on the court who have historically thought with some sympathy with, I guess, Alito's position in some cases, that, you know, our current First Amendment is maybe too deregulatory. So it's not impossible for me to imagine an opinion coming out of the Supreme Court that gives the government a little bit more power than we might otherwise think to regulate the social media platforms. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, June 9th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on the online information ecosystem. And we're discussing litigation that could have major implications for First Amendment law and government regulation of social media platforms. On May 31st, by a 5-4 vote, the Supreme Court blocked a Texas law from going into effect that would have sharply limited how social media companies could moderate their platforms and would have required companies to abide by various transparency requirements. We've covered the law on this show before. We recorded an episode right after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit allowed Texas to implement the law, in the same ruling that the Supreme Court just vacated. But there's enough interesting stuff in the Supreme Court's order, and in Justice Samuel Alito's dissent, that we thought it was worth another bite at the apple. So Evelyn Dueck and I invited Genevieve Lakier, professor of law at the University of Chicago and Evelyn's colleague at the Knight First Amendment Institute, to walk us through just what happened. What exactly did the Supreme Court do? Why does Justice Alito seem to think that the Texas law has a decent chance of surviving a First Amendment challenge? And what does this suggest about the possible future of the extremely unsettled landscape of First Amendment law? It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 9th. The Supreme Court blocks the Texas social media law. Genevieve, thank you for coming back on. We wanted to ask you on because uh, at the end of last month, the Supreme Court issued an order on the application by a group of tech companies to stop the Texas social media law known as HB 20 from going into effect. And this is after a ruling by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that the law could go into effect. We'd spoken about the Fifth Circuit order a few weeks ago on the podcast with Alex Abdo and Scott Wilkins, who are your and Evelyn's colleagues at the Knight Institute. And listeners who want a deeper dive might want to go back and listen to that to sort of dig into the details. But briefly, can you give us an overview of what this litigation is over the Texas law for those who are just catching up? Uh, Sure. Okay. So I think it was in September of last year, uh, the Texas legislature, at the direction of the Texas Governor Abbott, Uh, enacted this new law, a pretty ambitious law, to regulate social media platforms above a certain size. And the legislature said the purpose of the law was to protect, you know, the free expression and the free exchange of ideas and information in the state by preventing the platforms from discriminating against users, and I think primarily against uh, conservative users. And so the law does a whole bunch of things. It has transparency provisions, uh, gives users certain kinds of due process rights, and it bans uh, the platforms from discriminating on the basis of viewpoint or geography. So it's this pretty ambitious law. And then the day after the legislature enacts the law and the governor signs the law, NetChoice, which is a trade association representing the major platforms, files suit against it in federal court, brings all kinds of charges, but including a First Amendment claim. Uh, and then that goes to the district court, which enjoined the law because it thought that the uh, NetChoice had a really good argument that the law was unconstitutional. And then it went up to the Fifth Circuit. <laughs> the Fifth Circuit, uh, it was really remarkable. Uh, it issues this extremely short order, no explanation, no rationale. 
but says, although the district court had found after a, you know, a pretty extensive opinion that the law had to be enjoined, which means couldn't go into effect because you don't want a law to go into effect if it's unconstitutional, the Fifth Circuit just reverses that with no explanation. And then there is this sort of very dramatic for lawyers, emergency appeal to the Supreme Court to see what it can do about the Fifth Circuit. And the court takes a while to hand down its order Uh, in part, I think, because Alito was writing a dissent, because there was a dissenting opinion. And then it hands down a 5-4 order, which (laughs) gets so complicated. It reverses the stay of the injunction, but basically all that means is it um, agrees with the district court that the law has to be enjoined. The law cannot go into effect because of the chance that it's unconstitutional, but it's only by a 5-4 vote. So if one justice had flipped, the result would have been different. Right. So in some sense, this could look fairly unremarkable. The Supreme Court is just continuing the injunction of the law while the Fifth Circuit has to sort out its actual ruling on the law. It's a short six-page opinion. You might think this is not worth a whole nother episode a couple (laughs) of weeks later to talk about what's going on, but there were an amazing amount of things um, in six short pages. Let's start with that then. Just Can you describe uh, what exactly the the order said, um, how it sort of panned out, and why it was surprising to First Amendment lawyers? So I guess two quick things about why the order might have been surprising. The first reason why is it was so close. 5-4 is as close as it gets. You know, even, say, a few years ago, if you had asked, I would imagine, like a representative sample of First Amendment lawyers, is this law constitutional? I think the consensus, like 99% would have said no. (laughs) Under the doctrine, as we understood it five years ago, it seems pretty clear that Texas does not have the power to ban these private media companies, the platforms from discriminating on the basis of viewpoint if they want to do it. And so the fact that four members of the court maybe, although, you know, we're not entirely sure because uh, Justice Kagan, she voted She voted with the minority, not with the majority, but she didn't join the opinion. So we don't really know what's going on with her. But maybe four members of the court have changed their understanding of what the First Amendment requires such that they're not sure that the law is unconstitutional. So that just just the numbers are really surprising because lots of people would have said this is a very, very simple question, whether the law is unconstitutional. But what's in the order? Well, what makes it difficult to talk about this law is that it has lots of different pieces. So we could take apart the different pieces. But uh, I guess there's two big parts. There's the no viewpoint discrimination piece, you know, what litigants sometimes call the must carry piece, because it says the platforms have to allow speech that they otherwise might not uh, onto their platform because they may not viewpoint discriminate. So there's that piece. And then there's all the due process and transparency portions of the law. So the um, no viewpoint discrimination piece is the part of the law that I think uh, most people would have said was blatantly unconstitutional because for about four decades now, the First Amendment cases have said that private companies that truck in expression, that regulate speech in some way, they have really broad power to decide who can speak on their property and whose speech they want to associate themselves with and who may not. And legislatures just do not have the power to interfere with those kinds of decisions. This is exactly precisely what Texas is doing. It's saying in this you know, very core way, we're going to interfere with the decisions you're making about what speech to allow on your platforms. And that perhaps, again, we're not sure, but perhaps four and certainly three members of the court now think that that's maybe not so unconstitutional is really surprising. Even when it comes to the due process and the transparency bits, you know, up until very recently, there were a lot of really smart and interesting First Amendment um, scholars and litigators who said that the First Amendment doesn't really allow these kinds of, you know, pretty onerous due process and transparency requirements. It doesn't allow the government to establish these processes that go into the, you know, the nuts and bolts of platform content moderation decision making and tell the platforms how it can do so and what kind of reasons it can give. And again, that four members of the court maybe (laughs) think that those are perfectly constitutional, maybe not as surprising as the portion that deals with the viewpoint discrimination bit of the law, but still quite uh, interesting. That gets to something that's crucial, which I think is that, you know, someone who who is new to this might say, okay, this sounds, you know, maybe very interesting to First Amendment lawyers. You, you said that the, the court's ruling was dramatic for lawyers, which I, I love. But, you know, it sounds like a whole lot of inside baseball. Why should I care? Why is the order a big deal? Like what, what storm clouds does it herald on the horizon? Well, potentially its implications are pretty profound uh, in both 
of the areas. Like when we're talking about this kind of viewpoint discrimination piece, and when we're talking about the due process and the transparency pieces. Okay, so I'll I'll talk about each one um, separately. So the way that the First Amendment has developed so far, the idea is that the way in which we protect democracy in this country uh, and we have a healthy public sphere and everyone gets to say their piece is we're just going to give private companies that own and operate important speech platforms. And here we can think about the newspapers, uh, radio stations, television companies, cable companies, you name it. We're just going to give them a lot of freedom to decide what speech to transmit or not transmit. And we're going to leave it to market forces to um, select certain viewpoints and voices to give them priority. And that's the way we're going to guarantee, we're going to try and guarantee at least, that the government doesn't get to control what the people think and say and hear and watch. And that's been the you know, governing presumption of how we organize things in this country for a long time. And the result has been very robust protection against even uh, mandates that, that speak in the name of freedom of speech that say, like the Texas law, we're trying to protect the free speech of users by imposing these non-discrimination duties. Those have generally been regarded, uh, particularly in the last few decades, as anathema to the First Amendment because they give the government you know, too much power over the uh, public sphere. Now, if the Supreme Court starts changing its view of this, the result could be, you know, much more room for government regulation of the private companies that own and operate the public sphere. And so that's pretty significant. We could see very different possibilities for regulation than we have than we thought were possible before. Another way of saying it is the First Amendment might turn out to be much less exceptional in its treatment of the boundaries that it sets for what the government can do when it comes to large media companies uh, than we had thought. Now, of course, that's the most dramatic implications of what's going on right now. It's much more likely, given the politics uh, swirling underneath all of this, that whatever departure from First Amendment orthodoxy is happening, it might happen uh, at the Supreme Court, it's going to be limited to the social media platforms. But even that's pretty significant. I mean, if the court says Texas, this Texas law is constitutional, it gives the green light to, you know, 49, 48 other states to enact similar laws. And we might start to go from a largely unregulated or deregulated environment to a, to a much more heavily regulated one. And there's a lot of disagreement about whether that would be good or bad or how, how to think about that. But it's really a very significant change that plausibly could really affect, you know, what it, it feels like to be on the social media platforms. Even with the, you know, the due process and the transparency bits, if the Supreme Court um, hands down a ruling that is pretty permissive, that gives governments a lot of power to impose transparency requirements, and I think this is probably more likely than it does in about face uh, about the viewpoint discrimination, you know, that could also allow a lot more regulation than many states have thought was possible up until now. And I know as Evelyn has written and talked about a lot, you know, one of the things we don't have in this area is a lot of transparency. And so potentially um, the Supreme Court could help incentivize states to demand a lot more transparency from the platforms. And so that's pretty significant as well. So I think we'll come back to talking about the changing politics and what might be driving this, you know, departure from decades of precedent. But just sort of back to this decision and the reading of the tea leaves that so many of us are trying to do right now about what might actually happen, because obviously to change the law, to change the precedent, you need uh, more than four votes, probably. And so looking at the coalitions here was weird and interesting. Thomas joining Alito's opinion wasn't really surprising, given uh, some of the things that he said before in this context. Gorsuch maybe is a little bit more surprising, and we'll come back to Kagan in a second, but can you tell us a little bit about, as you sit down and read the tea leaves of this order, what are you seeing in these shifts, and, and what do you think it indicates about what these justices might be thinking? Well, Thomas has long been a First Amendment iconoclast. So yes, it's not so surprising that he, he uh, you know, it's clear that he's not such a big fan of the social media platforms. He doesn't really like the current First Amendment law as it applies to the press more generally. He's a critic of the New York Times v. Sullivan decision. So he's really worried about the, you know, excessive power, I think, of West Coast elites over the public sphere. So Thomas is not surprising. And I guess I, I don't think Gorsuch is that surprising either. He's made less of a name for himself as an iconoclast on First Amendment issues than Thomas, but he has recently signaled a similar real concern about liberal control of the mass media. And so to the extent, you know, I know you said you didn't want to talk about the politics, but it's really hard to get away from the politics to the extent that what's driving these decisions is anxiety that there is in fact a lot of um, liberal bias or anti-conservative discrimination 
um, happening in these private companies. I guess it's not so surprising that Gorsuch is feeling that too and coming out in the same place perhaps as Thomas. And then Alito also, you know, in some ways Alito is the least surprising because Alito is, I think, the member of the conservative coalition on the court who has uh, in the past been the least uh, worried about protecting free speech. Alito is often the justice who dissents, actually, uh, when there you know, when it doesn't maybe affect um, the decision from the you know the Thomases and the Chief Justice Roberts of the world's very libertarian First Amendment decision making to say, hey, you know maybe we should regulate more. He's much more worried about public morals. He he signaled an openness to much more regulation of uh, morality and obscenity and so uh, and violence. And so I guess for Alito, this is less of a departure maybe than it would be for others. I think it is very interesting, though, that Kavanaugh, who has made his name as a you know very hardcore uh, Fisman libertarian, did not sign on to the order. And you know the big unknown, I think, is Barrett. Where are her allegiances? Because we don't really know that much about her take on the First Amendment. And so, which way she goes could really have a decisive impact um, on how the cookie crumbles. Uh, I, I don't know how to read the tea leaves because you know the liberals in the court. They clearly voted, uh, except for Kagan, they voted with the majority, which means that they are applying, uh, I guess, settled First Amendment principles as of five years ago and think that there's a high likelihood that the law is unconstitutional. But, you know, it's the liberal justices on the court who have historically thought with some sympathy with, I guess, Alito's position in some cases that, you know, our current First Amendment is maybe too deregulatory. So it's not impossible for me to imagine an opinion coming out of the Supreme Court that gives the government a little bit more power than we might otherwise think to regulate the social media platforms that someone like Breyer or Kagan could join. And so although in this case, the order came out the way I think we would have predicted it to, so the law gets enjoined, it's not going to go into effect. Now there's going to be, you know, full briefing and argument about the merits of the law. And ultimately, I think it's going to go up to the Supreme Court. So all of that is as predicted. It's really very hard for me to, to predict where individual members of the court are going to come out on the merits of the law because it's complicated. You know, liberals generally want to regulate powerful private corporations <laughs> and conservatives don't, but they really don't like the social media platforms. And so you could imagine, this is why it's so interesting right now and so unpredictable. You could imagine uh, the right opinion could, in fact, garner five votes for um, a significant departure from the orthodoxy. So let's then talk about Justice Kagan. I think her her dissenting as well was a, a surprise to a lot of people, uh, certainly to me. So as, <laughs> as you mentioned, she didn't join the others in dissenting, but she also didn't explain her position. I've seen a number of different theories about why she might have decided this way, including maybe, you know, maybe it had to do with the actual case at hand. Maybe it had to do with her, the criticism that she's leveled elsewhere of emergency applications to the Supreme Court, which are now sort of colloquially often known as the shadow docket. So sort of a procedural issue separate from the Texas law. Can you talk about the different possible reasons why she might have taken this step and, and what your sort of read is of the situation? Sure, I can take a stab at it. I guess I'll say I have no idea. <laughs> and I guess I would be very skeptical of anyone who claims to know because uh, it's somewhat mysterious. You know, if this was really part of a principal stand on the shadow docket, you would have thought that she could have written a paragraph or two explaining that and making it clear. Like principal stands really work when you make clear the principle that you're standing on. And so it is odd that there was no writing. That makes me think that it has more to do with the merits of the case and the First Amendment questions. But of course, you know, take that with a big grain of salt because I'm a First Amendment person. So I always want to move everything into a, you know, First Amendment context. But just thinking about Kagan and the First Amendment, you know, <laughs> there's so many things to say. So one of the interesting things about her dissenting is that she made her name when she was a professor and she was a First Amendment scholar, among other things, with an article that argued that really all the questions in First Amendment law boil down to an examination of the government's motives. And the thing that the First Amendment is most worried about is government legislation that is the product of bad motives. And so you would think that that would lead her to be extremely skeptical of a law like the Texas law, which announces its highly political motives in every moment, you know, in the preamble, in the signing statement. This was clearly part of a broader uh, political effort to uh, to criticize the liberal bias in big tech. So on that, uh, you know, in that respect, it's somewhat surprising that Kagan would be in any way sympathetic to this law. On the other hand, 
she is, like some of the other liberal justices on the court, a critic of the libertarian First Amendment. She has written quite famously about the dangers of weaponizing the First Amendment. And in a whole bunch of dissents and concurrences, she has tried to articulate maybe a more nuanced approach to First Amendment protection, which isn't quite so anti-regulation or deregulatory. And so one way to read this is she just isn't sure. <laughs> this is a moment where, you know, on the one hand, she can see the problems with the law. But on the other hand, she is perhaps sympathetic to the idea that we might want to regulate these really powerful private companies more extensively than some of the doctrine, some of the existing precedents would suggest. And so she is willing to let the law go into effect and see what happens and see what cases, what challenges emerge out of it. Um, so that's one way to read it, that she's really unsure about the merits. But uh, it was extremely surprising to me as well. And I'm very curious to see what happens when the case comes back to the court. Okay, so because we were just talking about the shadow docket and Kagan's principled or otherwise stand on the shadow docket, let's dig into that just a little bit and take a very wonky tangent um, about an issue that your colleague at Chicago Law School, Will Bode, called a little procedural question about how the court handles these applications. And that's how the court is supposed to consider them, whether it's supposed to evaluate the applications on the basis of existing law, as in how the law currently uh, stands on the precedents that are on the books, or how the law might be after they take the case, because of course they're the Supreme Court and they can change the law on the books. And that may sound really technical and, um, as Quinta said, inside a baseball for First Amendment lawyers, but I think it says something really interesting about, you know, how unsettled the law is in this area if it, you know, reflects difference of judicial opinion on what the existing law is. So, Let's talk about it. How is the court supposed to evaluate these questions and how did Alito describe that? And, and, and what does it say about how much is up for grabs here? Okay, great. I mean, I think it's a great question because it gets at something, maybe some a little bit of the sneakiness of common law jurisprudence or at least of what's going on in this area. Okay, so technically courts are supposed to evaluate preliminary injunctions where the law should be stopped before they actually go into effect under the existing precedents. And the whole idea here is that, you know, there's going to be a relatively quick ruling. Time is of the essence. The law is about to go into effect. A court has to reach a decision. It doesn't have time to really think through the merits of the law, uh, you know, develop new and interesting principles to apply to the facts at hand. So it's just supposed to apply the existing precedents. And under those precedents, what's the likely outcome in the case? It's not a definitive uh, determination, so this is really important to keep in mind when thinking about also the lower court decisions in these cases, the district court opinion in Texas, and then there's also a relative, uh, similar Florida law that has had uh, decisions uh, in that case. Those are all preliminary injunction decisions. They're all likely decisions. They're not conclusive decisions about the constitutionality of the law because the idea is that they're all acting pretty quickly, trying to figure out whether the law can go into effect or not. And so that's the standard. You're supposed to just sit on the existing precedents and then make a determination about the likelihood of the constitutionality of the law. And that's the same standard that the Supreme Court applied because it's just reviewing the decision making of the lower courts. Um, so it's just looking over their shoulders to see whether they did it right or wrong. And so it's applying the same standard. Technically, it's applying the same standard. But of course, the Supreme Court gets to make up the law. And so what a preliminary injunction decision is also at the same time is it gives you a really, <laughs> not perfect, but pretty good insight into what the court's likely to do ultimately uh, when it actually looks at the merits of the case and makes a final decision. And so I guess it's not surprising that sometimes when the Supreme Court is making a ruling on a preliminary injunction, it's not just thinking about existing law, it's thinking about how it's actually going to resolve the case when it dives into it on the merits. But, it, you know, the courts are not supposed to say that. <laughs> One of the, uh, I guess, the fictions of a lot of common law legal decision making in our system is that the courts are not making new law. They're just interpreting the old law, maybe in new ways. So one of the ways in which you establish your authority as a judge is you rely on the old precedents. But when the old precedents don't necessarily 
lead to the outcome you want, you think is correct in a case, judges have a lot of discretion to read the precedent in novel ways, more expansively, more narrowly, to say different kinds of things. And in those cases, the judge will say, oh, I'm just interpreting the old law. I'm not doing anything new. But an outside observer will say, no, in fact, you are creating new law by rereading the old precedents. You know, I like to tell my students that, you know, the law is never fixed. The future of the law is, is not fixed, but neither is the past because judges are constantly reinterpreting the old precedents to serve new needs. And so, one of the things that I think is most interesting about the Alito dissenting opinion in this case is how much it's doing that. Alito says really forcefully that the standard is we have to evaluate the preliminary injunction under existing law. And as I said just a little bit ago, you know, if we took that to mean you pool 100 of the most um, respected First Amendment scholars and litigators in the country five years ago and you ask, is the law constitutional under the precedents, the outcome would have been, uh, I think, certainly very, very clear. Um, many parts of this law would have been considered unconstitutional. So what Alito, but what Alito says is we're going to look at the law under the existing law. And under existing law, who knows? <laughs> I don't know, because social media platforms are novel beasts. Now, uh, he's saying that he's just applying existing precedents, but he's doing something pretty forward-looking here. He's signaling, I think, to the courts and to other members of the, of the court that he doesn't think that the older precedents which up until recently, everyone assumed would apply to social media platforms, just like they apply to cable companies and to newspapers and to other disseminated information. The view was that those, you know, there can be some factual differences, but basically the principles are the same. He's signaling that he doesn't think that's true. That's new. <laughs> that's not part of the doctrine. He's not citing any cases for support of that, but he's indicating that he's open to that uh, point of view. And so, although he says what he's doing is he's arguing on the basis of existing law. In fact, uh, merely saying that the existing law is unclear is uh, doing something pretty new. It's a kind of sneaky way of doing something new, but it's a really powerful signal to the lower courts, I think, especially to the Fifth Circuit, about how to phrase its argument, how to rule in this case in a way that Alito and those who joined his opinion uh, might be sympathetic to. So you've been very careful and diplomatic in, in describing Alito's opinion, but I am curious, you know, just what you think of how it was written and the argument that it made. I mean, wh whether or not you agree with it, whether or not it's a accurate portrayal of what the law looks like or where the law might be going, do you think it made a good argument? Well, I find it really, I find it irritating <laughs> that Alito cannot just come out and say, you know, I think we should rethink the precedents given these new realities. He was not making an argument on the basis of existing precedent. And so it annoys me that he was trying to say that he was. It's a way of cloaking what you're doing, evading responsibility for what you're doing, I think, by, you know, going back in time and rereading the precedents in a way that you find uh, useful. So I find that annoying. Uh, on the other hand, I guess, I, I, you know, it seems unlikely that he's pulling the wool over many people's eyes. So maybe it doesn't really matter. It's not a persuasive opinion, but he wasn't trying to persuade. It's six pages. He's not really doing any arguing. He's not laying out any good um, reasons for the conclusions he reached. He's just signaling his affiliations and allegiances. And so it's not persuasive, but it's, it's very revealing, I think. It tells us what he's thinking and who he's sympathetic to. And so it reads in many ways, as a kind of political opinion. He's identifying his allegiances and his sympathies, and that's going to be uh, useful to litigants. But, you know, for those who are already convinced, it's going to be convincing. For those who are not convinced, it's not going to be convincing. Uh, but he's not really trying to convince anyone, I think. I think he's trying to give a sign to the lower courts about where he and Gorsuch and Thomas are. And then they can use that to make arguments that the rest of the court's going to then evaluate when it comes up. You know, there's kind of circularity here. Alito's signaling what he thinks, then the Fifth Circuit can pick that up and run with it so that when it comes back before the Supreme Court, I think the idea is the argument will be in its best possible form and maybe at that point will be most persuasive to the other justices. Uh, but I don't think Alito was really trying to persuade anyone in the general public or even other members of the court. He's doing, it's a much more kind of inside baseball um, thing that he's doing. Yeah, speaking of of things that uh, annoyed us about the the dissent, I will say one thing that really uh, rode me the wrong way is that a very strange footnote 
where Alito essentially recaps an argument made by Texas that the platform's First Amendment argument is incompatible with their being shielded from liability for third-party content under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So this is, not to put too fine a point on it, extremely wrong. Um, Section 230 explicitly does allow platforms to moderate content while maintaining their immunity. And I thought it was very telling and, and even troubling that this complete misreading of the law, which is something that Republican Senators Ted Cruz and uh, Josh Hawley sort of started putting out into the ether in around 2018, was repeated with apparent cajolity by Alito and signed on to by Gorsuch and Thomas. So I'm curious what you made of that and and how that did or didn't affect sort of your, your read of the rest of his dissent. So Quinta, you agree with me that it's irritating when <laughs> things are reread and reimagined in ways that are not historically accurate. Exactly. I'll sign on to that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, Alito's reading of 230 is familiar. <laughs> Other conservatives like Josh Hawley have b- been making similar arguments. It's wrong, as you say. It's really not how Section 230 was understood or intended. It was never about neutrality. Uh, but again, he's signaling his allegiances. And I think he is pointing to a certain kind of uh, inconsistency in how the platforms themselves talk about what they do. In some venues and in some contexts, they proclaim the importance of their editorial decision-making. And in other contexts, uh, often to users, you know, they want to say, we're open to all comers. We have this expansive speech community. You're all welcome. We just have some basic ground rules. There is certainly inconsistency, you know, in the different ways that they describe themselves. And I think Alito is pushing on that. But yeah, the idea that that this is really anything to do with Section 230 or that means that we should court should not give platforms First Amendment rights because they depend on the protections of Section 230. You know, again, he's not really trying to persuade anyone. He's certainly not trying to persuade you or me. But he is saying, I'm really skeptical of these claims of editorial discretion on the, on the part of the platforms. And okay, to be a little bit more sympathetic to them, he's also saying, the thing about these platforms, at least the very large ones, the ones that are regulated by the Texas law, is that they are places of general public accommodation. They do hold themselves out to all members of the public with certain exceptions. But on the whole, they're not just places for particular hobbyists or particular kinds of people. They do announce themselves as general public forums. And so the most sympathetic reading of what Alito is saying there is when we have businesses that hold themselves out to the public, we are going to impose heightened duties on them to not discriminate or to uh, be fair in how they treat the you know, the members of the public who take care of their services. And there is, in fact, a long tradition of law that does this. It's public accommodations laws. There's certain kinds of businesses that are treated differently than others because they're open to the general public. And so Alito is saying, I think, maybe something like, aren't platforms uh, in this group of of businesses. But again, yes, uh, I think it has nothing to do with Section 230. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 
separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Okay, so we keep saying things like when this comes back to the court, we're trying to work out what will happen. And so let's talk a little bit about the, the factors that suggest that it may or may not. And this gets to something that we also just sort of referred to briefly, but it would be good to get a bit more detail on, which is what's happening in Florida. So there's obviously the fact that the Texas order was a 5-4 split that suggests that there's some real appetite and conflict over how to treat these laws under the First Amendment. But there's also the potential for a circuit split between the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit, as the Eleventh Circuit is dealing with these Florida laws that are that are bubbling up. Um, and we haven't talked about what's going on in Florida on this podcast for quite a while. Uh, but between the Fifth Circuit order a few weeks ago and the SCOTUS decision, the Eleventh Circuit actually issued its decision in the net choice litigation uh, that's happening about that law. And that law has a number of things in common with the Texas law. Um, but the court came to a, a different decision. So tell us a little bit about what's going on in Florida and what the 11th Circuit said. Yeah, it's been really busy. <laughs> There's been so much action. Uh, everything's happening relatively quickly in lawyer time, I guess I should say. Yeah, so what's interesting about the Florida law is both how it's similar to the Texas law and how it's different. Like the Texas law, it has similar politics. It's, again, motivated by this conservative fear of anti-conservative bias, like the Texas law, it has a whole bunch of due process and transparency obligations. Um, unlike the Texas law, however, 
it has this non-discrimination rule that uh, just looks different. It doesn't say no viewpoint discrimination. It says that platforms may not, I think, kick off or discriminate against political candidates really for any reason um, when they are on their platforms. You know, in some ways it's similar to the Texas law, but it's just a, it's a differently organized provision. And then, you know, there was this famous Disney exception that the the law applied to all platforms above a certain size that um, operated in the state of Florida, except Disney. But then the legislature is getting rid of the Disney exception because they are not angry at Disney and its org politics. Okay, so this law then made its way to the district court and then to the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit handed down a decision again, a preliminary injunction decision. So this is just supposedly, uh, is it likely to be found unconstitutional? It's not a definitive resolution of this question. Um, but it was a very thoughtful and pretty uh, elaborately described uh, decision. Uh, so I think we can we should take it as you know a pretty significant statement of what the Eleventh Circuit uh, thinks. And it treated the different parts of the law really differently. So the Eleventh Circuit said that the you may not deplatform political candidates was unconstitutional because it takes away the freedom of these private companies to decide what speech they may, they want to or don't want to have on their property. And this to me seems like an extremely straightforward application of the existing First Amendment law. Again, going back to the, you know, if you poll 100 reputable First Amendment scholars and litigators, what would they think? I think they would all come to the conclusion the 11th Circuit came to. Um, It was a three-judge panel, all Republican-appointed judges, uh, but they were really faithfully applying existing precedents. Now, I should note that we, you know, to say that isn't actually to say it's so great. Those precedents include this principle from the campaign finance line of First Amendment cases that say that uh, the government has no legitimate interest in trying to equalize the access of uh, speech opportunities for different people in the community. So it's this line from Buckley v. Vallejo that it's a totally foreign idea under the First Amendment that you might limit the speech of some in order to enhance the speech of others, basically saying, you know, the government may may not try and impose anti-discrimination norms in the name of the First Amendment. And it was this principle that the 11th Circuit relies upon to say that the the no deplatforming of political candidates provision in the Florida law is very likely to be unconstitutional. That's correct, I think, as a matter of doctrine. Uh, But, you know, I don't love that principle that the government may never think about equality when it comes to expressive opportunity, or it can never pass, say, for example, campaign finance laws that are meant to enhance the voices of others. And so the 11th Circuit comes to this completely defensible conclusion, a result in, in, uh, in this part of the opinion. But you could see how the Supreme Court might want to revisit that uh, in this context. What was interesting, though, about the 11th Circuit decision was that I think it broke from the existing precedents a little bit, or at least it read them in a somewhat original way, uh, because it upheld a lot of the disclosure and transparency requirements that were part of the Florida law, even though there were lots of you know really smart First Amendment um, scholars who thought that these were likely to be unconstitutional also. And uh, I mean, this gets a little bit wonky, but it applied um, this very deferential standard from this case called Zaudera, the Office of Disciplinary Counsel, that has in the past primarily been used when the government mandates disclosure and transparency in advertising. But the 11th Circuit said this applies also to uh, platforms when they are announcing their content moderation policies or providing information to users. This isn't exactly advertising. Uh, but the 11th Circuit said it's still commercial speech. And so this pretty deferential standard of a review applies. And on that basis, it upheld almost all of the disclosure and transparency requirements, except for one. Uh, and the one was uh, it required, I think, uh, the platforms to give full reasons anytime they did anything to limit or uh, take down content. And the court said that that's just so burdensome, it's going to prevent the platforms from actually doing what they're doing, from actually regulating speech. But all of the other provisions are constitutional. And that's really interesting because Alito, in his dissenting opinion from the Supreme Court order, he mentions Zaudera, the same case, and says, you know, I'm not entirely sure what I think about the argument that the government is making here, that all the disclosure and transparency obligations can be justified under this deferential standard, but I'm open to it, is essentially what he was saying. And so it does seem like there's a lot of appetite for reading this case out or a pretty expansively in this context. And that would mean, I mean, if, you know, if the court ultimately takes the 11th Circuit case 
or takes the Fifth Circuit case, or I think what's likely is consolidates these two uh, cases and deals with both the Texas and the Florida laws, and then comes out with a ruling that says, you know, actually when legislatures impose transparency and due process obligations on platforms, courts should apply pretty deferential scrutiny because this is about, you know, giving more information to the public, not restricting the flow of information. And it's it doesn't really interfere with their ability to make content moderation decision making. It just requires them to tell the public what it is that they're doing when they're doing the decision making. If that's the end result, well, that gives a lot more regulatory power to the government than uh, we may have thought that it possessed so far. And it gives permission to, you know, it's not just the Floridas and the Texases of the uh, of the world that now have permission to regulate in this way. It's also California and New York and Illinois. And I think that'd be really interesting. So I want to pause on this for a moment longer because I think this is really important, but it's not getting as much attention as I think it should or as much attention as the other parts of the law and all the, you know, content moderation must carry, must not discriminate parts of the law, which you know, maybe justifiably get the focus of the public attention. But, you know, this is a personal bugbear of mine, as you kindly mentioned earlier. I write a lot about transparency and um, the importance of it. And we've talked a lot on the podcast about moves to try and get transparency and bills on the Hill and whether they'll be successful. And so I think it's, you know, would be useful to break down into really sort of concrete terms what exactly is happening here and how innovative or otherwise what courts are trying to work out and, and do here is because you, you might think that transparency obligations on companies um, is something that's really settled or you know a good thing, but certainly that hasn't been the case in in this litigation. The the platforms and many amici have been arguing that these transparency obligations are uh, unconstitutional, including ones that are just like tell us what your policies are. And so, yeah, if you could break that down for us a little bit more, how up for grabs is this? How settled is the law, and what exactly does it look like the courts are doing? Okay. I mean, it is so unsettled. <laughs> There's fighting going on, I'm sure right now in a federal court near you about the, the scope of the government's power to mandate disclosure and the First Amendment. Incredibly unsettled area of law. So I'll try and keep it a little bit simple. The First Amendment cases have said for over a hundred years that in some cases, when the government compels people to speak, that's as bad from a First Amendment perspective, from a freedom of speech perspective, as when it restricts them from speaking. Because to require someone to say something they don't want to say, that interferes with their right to speak, just like shutting them up does. And so, you know, when the government compels you to swear allegiance to the flag, say, that violates your free speech rights. So that's sort of the basic principle here. And on that principle, disclosure laws look pretty problematic because they're requiring companies, in this case, to speak in all kinds of ways that they might otherwise not. Now, you know, the claim is often made that these aren't such a big intrusion on the company's First Amendment freedoms because they're already providing a certain amount of transparency. But of course, the whole point of these laws is to mandate transparency, even in cases where the platforms wouldn't want to provide it. And so they say this is compelled speech. And for over 100 years, the First Amendment has said, you know, the government usually may not compel speech. And so bye-bye regulators, it's up to us to decide what to disclose or not to disclose. But then what makes this complicated is that there's a whole separate line of cases that emerge out of disputes involving the regulation of commercial sellers and marketers that say, but okay, but hold on. <laughs> when we've got the commercial relations at stake, disclosure is, is much more permissible because, of course, when you're a seller and you're advertising to a buyer and you know things that they don't and they can't know, it would be awful if you can, if you have total freedom to disclose whatever it is you want to disclose and not disclose anything else. It would produce really scary markets. It would lead to a lot of public harm. It would be very inefficient from a social standpoint. And so we really, we think in this context, disclosure is serving a really important purpose. And so it's out of this a set of concerns that the courts have developed a separate line of cases dealing with disclosure in when it comes to what's known as commercial speech. And in these line of cases, the courts say this very different set of considerations and concerns when it, than when it comes to disclosure about, say, religious matters or political matters. And in this context, the legislature has quite a lot of power, but not unlimited power, to require commercial actors to disclose information that is useful to the public. 
And so the states of Texas and Florida are drawing on this line of case to, to say, this is the commercial marketplace. The platforms are for-profit businesses. This is just like ordinary consumer welfare law. We're just trying to make sure that there is truth in advertising and that consumers understand what it is, what are the policies that are operating in these uh, for-profit platforms that they're using, that they're spending all their time on and that they're providing all this revenue for with their clicks. And so that's the argument. But the, the problem is, well, I guess there are so many unsettled questions, but there's like two really interesting unsettled questions here uh, that maybe it's worth flagging. So the one is, is this commercial speech? So historically, like the area where we know for sure the government has a lot of power to mandate disclosures is when it comes to advertising or when it comes to contractual arrangements. So, you know, when you sign a contract with someone, you have all these obligations to tell them the uh, material facts that are relevant to their decision to enter into that contractual relationship with you. We take that for granted, I think, nowadays, but it is a whole set of mandated disclosures that um, people who are in business have to provide. And that's for all the reasons I talked about earlier. And that's pretty uncontroversial. Similarly, with advertising, the courts have upheld quite a lot of mandated disclosure in the advertising context when it's necessary to prevent would-be consumers from being deceived or misled about the good that they're buying or the service they're going to consume. But, you know, platform content moderation policies, well, are they contracts? You know, you sign a contract, you, um, when you're a user of the platform, you agree to its terms of services, but um, that's not exactly the same thing as all the information that Texas and Florida are mandating about how it is that they're enforcing their policies and what are the reasons that they're taking down speech and so it's not exactly at the moment of, of contractual relationships that there's this mandated disclosure. It's an ongoing obligation that Texas and Florida are imposing on the platforms. It's also not really advertising. They're not advertising their services. They're just telling you about their policies and they're adjudicating disputes that arise on the platform or they're explaining to consumers the decision-making that they're, that they're doing. And so it doesn't fall neatly into the buckets that we are accustomed to when we're talking about the government's power to mandate disclosures. And so for that reason, the platforms have been arguing that this isn't commercial speech and that this deferential scrutiny shouldn't apply. And they've also been arguing that, you know, if they have to give all this information about their policies, their content moderation policies to the public, that's going to chill their ability to make whatever policies they want. Because if they actually have to be truthful about, say, their hate speech policy or how they treat powerful people as opposed to ordinary users like you and me, there's going to be backlash and they're not going to be able to do it. And that's going to chill their freedom. And so for that reason, also, there's a real problem with these disclosure laws. Now, I'll, just, I'll have to say, personally, I find neither of those arguments convincing. I think this is a really interesting and good context in which to apply this more deferential standard of scrutiny when it comes to disclosure laws. Because for one thing, this is about regulating a market. <laughs> these are companies. And I think these are truth in advertising laws to some degree. I mean, the what the at least a well-drafted law would do, ideally, is require the platforms to provide sufficient information so that members of the public and users understand the terms under which they're able to use the service and what are the decisions that are being made and also to have some assurance that the decisions aren't totally arbitrary or capricious or discriminatory. And that seems to me all to the good. I think consumers have the right to understand the terms under which they're getting service. And then as for the chilling effects, you know, I think the First Amendment protects a lot of expressive freedom, but it doesn't protect speakers, whether they're corporations or individuals, from facing consequences for their speech. In fact, the whole idea of the marketplace of ideas is you make certain choices and then other people have the freedom to have a response to your choice, to associate with you or not associate with you, to argue with you, to agree with you, to eulogize you, to do whatever they want in response to your, your choice. And so the fact that the these mandated transparency or disclosure requirements might lead uh, in some cases, members of the public to be angry at the platforms or to dislike the platform's choices. I think that's all to the good. That's part of the marketplace of ideas. Platforms can make decisions about what they want to allow and what they don't want to allow on their uh, service. But then members of the public, I think, have the right to know what those choices are and have a response to it. And so I think it's pretty exciting and interesting that the 11th Circuit agreed with me, <laughs> or I guess I'm agreeing with it, that this is a totally a sensible application of this line of commercial speech disclosure cases. 
but there's a lot of people who disagree and it's a very it's very unsettled how broadly or how narrowly we should think about the government's power to mandate disclosure when we have uh, for-profit companies involved. Yeah, and so one thing I just want to sort of emphasize here for the listeners um, is this idea of severability that, you know, the laws aren't necessarily going to rise and fall as one. We could see the courts strike down the content moderation provisions and uphold the disclosure or transparency provisions, which is exactly what we did see in the 11th Circuit. But I think because the focus is so often on the the content moderation provisions, you know, the coverage often says things like, you know, struck down the Texas law or upheld the Texas law um, when we're actually talking about very complicated laws with lots of moving parts. And so I'm curious whether you have any thoughts of what, you know, when this does go back to the Supreme Court, whether, you know, severability is something that they often engage in in this area and that that might be a nice way of them splitting the baby if they're concerned about, you know, the the, the political appearance of this. Is there anything in Alito's dissent uh, that gives you any, you know, sort of signs about this? How, how likely is it to see some some portions of the law upheld and others fall? Well, yeah, I think that there's a good chance that they will sever the law and uphold some portions and not others. It's much more likely that a majority of the court is going to agree that probably not all, but maybe most of the disclosure and due process requirements in the Texas or the Florida laws is constitutional because they'll apply this kind of Zorda analysis that I was just talking about that the 11th Circuit employed. And you can Uh, see the conservatives getting on board with this because they're very distrustful of the platforms. And then the liberals getting on board because they're generally more in favor of uh, transparency and want there to be somewhat more regulation of private companies. And so that seems to me actually quite likely. By no means certain, we could get a decision that says, nope, the entire law, all these laws are unconstitutional, go back to the beginning, square one. But I think that there's the highest likelihood is that we're going to get a majority decision uh, allowing at least some portions of the disclosure, due process, transparency parts of the law to go into effect. I think it's pretty unlikely that a majority of the justices on the court, as it's currently constituted, are going to say that the Texas legislature has the power to ban these private companies from engaging in viewpoint discrimination. This is for a couple of reasons. One is that the legislature didn't even bother to define what counts as viewpoint discrimination. And when it comes to the First Amendment, you know, very vague laws are a real problem. And there's just a real lack of attention to detail when it comes to this law. And so although you might imagine that there's some context in which some of the liberal justices on the court might be open to certain kinds of non-discrimination provisions, this just seems very unlikely to be it. And the Florida law has similar, if not greater, problems. And second, you know, this would be a real departure from the existing precedents. And so Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas have signaled they're on board. (laughs) And what's amazing to me about uh, Alito's dissent also is, you know, he paid no attention to the vagueness problems with the law. Uh, He was not critical of the law at all. It seemed very clear he was signaling he's willing to go the full distance with this law. He thinks it's totally fine. Let's, Let's go ban viewpoint discrimination on the platforms. But that's only three. And even though Kagan voted with Alita Gorsuch and Thomas, she didn't join the opinion, it seems unlikely to me that she would be so excited about uh, this law, although I I could see it possible that some other more carefully drafted law that has some kind of non-discrimination or must-carry provision might be amenable to her. And then the, the other liberals on the court, you know, it's Again, it's just hard for me to find five votes for that portion of the law. But again, not impossible. We just don't know what Barrett thinks. We don't really know what Sotomayor thinks. I don't want to be on record saying definitively anything one way or the other because we don't know. But there is, you know, I think there's the most likely outcome, I would imagine, is that the court says most of the law is unconstitutional, but very closely connected, uh, sort of neck and neck with that, is that it upholds the disclosure and the transparency provisions. And then five, 10 years down the line, what becomes significant about this litigation is not the ruling when it comes to the anti-discrimination portions, the highly politicized portions. It's the ruling about the non-disclosure and transparency obligations, which becomes significant. Right now, everyone's focused on the non-discrimination portions of the law, but there might be the sleeper story happening right now about disclosure and transparency obligations. So as you've mentioned, the neither the Texas nor the Florida law is really a, a model of good faith legislation to regulate social media. I think it's 
fair to say mm-hmm. that they're politically motivated, sort of retaliatory by very conservative legislatures against what they perceive as, you know, big tech censorship of, of conservatives. But, so maybe they're they're not a model of what we would be looking for. And and I think we, we had another example of what that might look like recently with Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's announcement that the state is uh, investigating Twitter for potentially misleading Texans on the number of its, its bot users uh, in response to Elon Musk raising questions about bots on Twitter. And I, I think, you know, Paxton's investigation seems like a pretty good example of how even transparency measures can potentially be recognized for political ends. So I think my question is, how do we think about the role of the Ken Paxton's of the world or the Florida mm-hmm. and Republican state legislatures in this conversation? You know, we're we're having a, a good faith intellectual discussion about the nature of First Amendment law. And meanwhile, there are people who are, I think it's fair to say, engaging in in bad faith. If, if you have a position that is more open to government regulation of platforms, how do we prevent against weaponization of that by bad faith actors? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. <laughs> Three thoughts. One is, well, we're never wholly safe. I don't think there's any set of rules that's going to completely protect us from bad faith government actors. And I don't think we should feel ever totally complacent about it. I think this is partly why I'm a free speech person. I think we need continuing criticism and overview and scandals in the press, constantly exposing what public officials are doing to scrutiny and maybe (laughs) other forms of action. Because I don't think you get to a situation where you can be completely confident in the good faith of government actors or private actors or powerful people in society in general. I guess I'm generally pretty um, suspicious about that attitudinally (laughs) and as a professional matter. But what do we think about laws like the Texas and Florida law? Do they enable much more bad faith behavior than would otherwise be the case? I know that there's a lot of people who have that view and who are really horrified by the Texas and the Florida laws. And like I said, I don't think they're good laws and I don't think they're well drafted. And I wish that there were better laws. I wish Congress would get in the business and start thinking seriously about how to achieve similar kinds of aims when it comes to transparency and due process and maybe non-discrimination, but do it in a more thoughtful, reasoned way. Uh, But that doesn't seem likely. And so when we're facing a law like the Texas law or the Florida law, I think there is an impulse certainly by some, to read it in the scariest way possible, the most expansive, the craziest way possible to highlight the political nature of these laws, because for sure they are politically motivated and they're playing into a whole set of uh, partisan battles. But in practice, I'm not entirely sure that that's how, if implemented, if they were allowed to go into effect, these laws will work out. Because, of course, the interpretation of these laws is going to depend upon a thousand different state court decisions trying to interpret different provisions of the law. And although the state courts are themselves not not political, they're also generally pretty practical. And neither Texas nor Florida wants to drive the platforms out of business. They don't want to have a terrible disruption in the ability of their citizens to access these important services. And so my intuition, uh, my prediction, is that even if these pretty bad laws were to go into effect, as Alito seems to want them to go into effect, they would be narrowed in interpretation, that initially it would be a Wild West kind of situation. There'd be a lot of litigation. But over time, there'd be a body of law that develops that narrows laws in important ways and sort of makes them livable, maybe not ideal, but uh, livable. And so I do think, and maybe this is just, you know, I'm too much of a lawyer. I'm really thinking about all the good work that this will give to lawyers, the guaranteed employment of the next five years. But I do think the, you know, what exactly the Texas law requires, what exactly the Florida law requires, it's not clear. I don't think the legislature knows either. And so it's going to be a slow process of development and interpretation in the courts. And I think a lot of that is going to narrow perhaps the most egregious aspects of the law. Although, again, (laughs) some of that's going to depend upon the politics of the courts. On the question about Paxton, you know, it's a great question. The power of these powerful attorney generals or the power of powerful prosecutors to make the lives of companies or other actors Uh, really awful, (laughs) and to use both soft and hard power to prevent uh, people from speaking or 
making the decisions they want to make. I think we should take that extremely seriously. And, you know, I'm actually working on a project about jawboning and about the government's use of pressure and informal sanctions to shut people up. I think it's a really significant problem and it's too often underappreciated. People don't think about it enough when they think about the First Amendment. They spend way too much time just thinking about the formal actions of the government. And yet we know that all this informal stuff, the stuff that Paxton loves to engage in, can have really chilling effects. But that said, I don't think that the the fact that government officials can abuse their power means that we should never give the government any legislative power or any regulatory power, because, you know, that means that we're just going to give all the power to the private sector and the private sector also can abuse its power. I think the Ken Paxton's of the world are a good motivation to have very thoughtful uh, law and policy regulating the activities of these powerful uh, executive branch officials in particular. So I think we should have stronger rules around jawboning and we should have more, we should put a lot more thought into what kinds of information can attorneys general demand companies to hand over and what can they not. And it's not like there aren't laws and policies surrounding this. You know, Twitter filed suit against Paxton when he demanded information from it as part of what he said was an investigation that might lead to a lawsuit. And it went to the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit said, you know, the company has a lot of resources when the when Paxton actually demands these documents, it can file a First Amendment challenge. And there's all kinds of uh, First Amendment litigation about the production of information and whether it's necessary or not and the extent to which it's retaliatory. We already have that on the books. And so I suppose I think that Ken Paxton, we should take the threat that Ken Paxton represents seriously. But Ken Paxton is not a reason not to pass laws regulating the social media platforms. He's just a reason to have really good uh, rules and policies about the power of prosecutors and the power of attorneys general. And uh, I guess I'll say also, this is not just a First Amendment problem. (laughs) This is a problem that pervades our entire system. Let's leave it there. Genevieve, thank you so much for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having me. It was fun. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. And we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, where you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahowell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.